0: Ask any tween or teen what stresses you out, and unless it's the 4th of July, the kid is likely to say without hesitation, school. Maybe it's the social pressure pitting outsiders against insiders or the brain-numbing schedule flipping from the Treaty of Versailles to mitochondria to the quadratic equation at 50-minute intervals. Perhaps it's the crush who mercilessly crushed you, or the coach who never lets you play. Whatever it is, waking up on a school day and wishing it was Saturday is totally normal. On the other hand, sometimes parents see kids resisting school with such ferocity, something else is going on. It may be school refusal behavior and it isn't normal at all, not as in normal functioning. School refusal behavior is a recognized anxiety disorder that takes I-don't-like-school to a whole other level where a child's fears get in the way of living. According to Dr. Christopher Kearney, an expert on school refusal disorder, this problem affects 5 to 28 percent of children during their school lives. Most commonly affected group? Not little kindergartners, but 12 to 18-year-olds. In case this is all new to you, school refusal behavior has nothing to do with students preferring to slack off instead of going to class. Kids suffering with this are terrified of going to school. Even parents who never loved school themselves may be baffled, embarrassed, or frustrated by their child's behavior. They may wonder, why can't she just drop all this drama and get herself out the door? If a parent isn't informed, it's a reasonable question. Maggie Hahn, clinical coordinator of the Adolescent Psychiatric Unit at Northwest Community Hospital in Arlington Heights, Illinois, has an answer. It breaks down into two reasons, she says. Some kids are terrified of something in school, either taking tests or thinking that the other kids are laughing at them. Others have actual separation anxiety and are afraid that something bad will happen at home while they're gone. To give you a sense of what it can feel like for the kid, here are some emails I've gotten. For some reason, I don't really fit in with other teens. I have a habit of making every situation with new friends really awkward, or people think I'm weird. I don't do anything outright to make them think this, but a lot of the time, I don't know what to say to people I have just met, and then I get nervous. I hate the way I am, and it makes it really difficult for me to make friends in new environments. I guess I just don't have the quick wit or sense of humor necessary to make people like me or something. Anyway, my social anxiety is a big problem because I'm going to a new school and leaving my two friends next year, and I'm going to have to make new ones. I don't know how to get over my problems so people like me. And this one. I used to love to learn, but it seems as though ever since 10th grade I've gotten slower, and I know that I do suffer from anxiety, but of course Mom doesn't believe me. I wanna get my life straight and I need help. Doesn't sound like much fun, does it? And too many students suffering from school anxiety don't let anyone know how bad it is for them. That's a shame because these problems can be treated successfully. The first step is helping parents understand what is and what isn't perfectly normal when their kids start to show signs of avoiding school. The other part is knowing what resources are out there to help parents help their kids. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, I Don't Want to Go to School, Helping Your Child Overcome School Anxiety. My guest today is Diane peters Mayer, author of Overcoming School Anxiety, How to Help Your Child Deal with Separation, Tests, Homework, Bullies, Mathphobia, and Other Worries. Diane peters Mayer is a licensed social worker. After graduating from the University of Pennsylvania, she trained in New York City for many years with Dr. Ben Rapaport, a Master Therapist and Scholar in Existential Humanistic Psychotherapy. Diane's own struggle with school anxiety and how she overcame it is the basis for her specialization. In private practice for the past 18 years, Diane's therapeutic work empowers kids, teens, and adults to take control of their anxiety so they can live full, rich, and rewarding lives.
1: Welcome, Diane. Hi, Annie. It's great to be here.
0: I'm really excited about talking to you about your book, Overcoming School Anxiety, because I was actually shocked when I read how prevalent this is with kids. And I think I'd like to jump right in and say that we've all had days when we wanted to just pull the covers up over our heads and avoid whatever was waiting for us outside our front door. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners, what's the difference between that, oh, I don't really want to go to school today, we're having a math test, versus what you're describing at great length in your book.
1: There's a main feature of anxiety, or a kid who starts to have daily anxiety, and that is the degree of symptoms. If you see your child begging and crying to stay home every day, holding, uh, young children, they will literally hold on to a parent's leg and scream, I don't want to go out the door. And you see this over and over again, then you know it's becoming chronic. And that's when you start, you have to take action.
0: It's heartbreaking for parents, I'm sure. And you talk in the beginning of the book about a special empathy that you have for children who are suffering like this because you You mentioned that you had school anxiety yourself. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. I had school anxiety from the moment I entered elementary school. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, until I graduated from graduate school. Wow. Even even though it was under control, it was something that I, I, I just had for years and years and, and just couldn't shake. But I had a pretty severe case early on, and um, I did not want to go to school. And my mother had it also, and I think there was just some anxiety in the house to begin with. And it's so interesting because I do have a private practice, so not only do I write about it, but I actually um, see children in my practice who have school anxiety. is one of the reasons they come in to me. And not long ago, I was working with a third grader and I usually will tell kids that I, it's not just that you're coming in to see Miss Diane, but I tell them that I understand how they feel because one of the features of anxiety is um, isolation, feeling you're the only one. So I will mention, of course, depending on the child, that I know how you feel and that I had it too. And I had a third grader say to me, oh, so is that why you do what you do? And she she understood it, and it was just the most darling thing, and we had this incredible connection. But it's that isolation or feeling weird. Kids say, oh, I feel weird, I feel different. They feel out of control, and they actually, most kids just don't know what's happening, and parents don't know what's happening either. They don't know what happened to their child because sometimes school anxiety starts abruptly. Sometimes it's there from the beginning, but sometimes it's triggered by something and then it becomes, it's quite frightening for parents to watch it.
0: I'd like to talk about those triggers because I think that's really interesting. A child who seemed to be very comfortable going to school, um, no separation anxiety from the parent early on, making friends, feeling comfortable in the class, enjoying some academic and social success, and then Suddenly, as you say, something can happen and it all shifts and school becomes a hostile place or a frightening place in the child's mind. Mm -hmm. So what kind of triggers might um, set this off?
1: One of the things I'm seeing, and I know a lot of my colleagues are too, is the uh, movement into third grade where the pressures, the school pressures begin to change. And there's this proliferation, of course, of testing, of achievement, and the children who were struggling at all or quite sensitive, um, just innately sensitive, begin to understand that there's been a shift from childhood into the tweens or the pre There's also social pressures begin to change at that time. The fitting in, the this, this social pressure begins to build at that time, too and for some of the kids I see, um, there's also more responsibility at home. I Sometimes I think about it as, you know, here you have this child who's beginning to grow up or understand that they're growing up, and some, I think it's hard for kids to go out into the world. Um, in some degree, they could be bullied, too. That's certainly a huge issue um, or not fitting in for a variety of reasons, but third grade seems to For me to be this shift, and the majority of kids I see are between the ages of 8 and 13, though I certainly see many, many teens too. But that's where it's triggered. The other triggers could be something that is occurring in the house. Uh, maybe a new baby or moving to a new school certainly a new location divorce death of a parent or some kind of major transition or upheaval is certainly going to trigger those feelings of maybe not wanting to leave home or having really having a difficult time concentrating and functioning in the school the way we expect a kid to function and the way they actually do want to function
0: that's interesting to me thinking about the family dynamic as you say it could be triggered by something internal in the Family, like um, a move or maybe a shift in a financial situation mm-hmm. at home with parents, um, the split up of parents, the death of in a family, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, from a kid's perspective, it's like the earth has shifted beneath their feet, and yet the adults who they normally go to for comfort and reassurance may be so wrapped up in whatever this cataclysmic family event has happened and impacted them as adults so that they're not totally paying attention to what the kid might be feeling. And that might fit into what you're saying about feeling isolated.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. You know, parenting skills certainly decrease at times when they're going through stress. And I th- you brought up something, I think, that's certainly topical, and that is the economic climate. And I'm really seeing quite a bit of that in my practice, because I have worked with a number of uh, children whose parents or, let's say, main breadwinner um, has been laid off and the children are really afraid that they're, ha- they're going to have to move or they're going to have to make some major shift in some way. Or let's say, if there has been a stay-at-home mother, she is now going to have to go out to work and they don't know what that means to them. And, you know, I think you're right. It's, it's just like this seismic shift is taking place. In this household, I know how it's functioning, and now I don't know how different it's going to be. And that's very scary for kids.
0: Sure, and there's a lot of conversation, I'm sure, around the table that is probably not meant for children's ears all the time. Mm-hmm. And they're, pick- they're picking it up on a real level, and on a psychic level, they're picking up the tension mm-hmm. in the family. And, of course, it it makes them feel unsafe. So you've got that. But I'm sure you also see kids who come from very stable homes where there has not been any discernible shift in the family dynamic, and yet something's going on at school.
1: Most of the time, it seems to be grades bullying social pressure. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take long for kids to realize that they are not making it academically, that they are falling behind in some way, or they're not able to um, Handle the homework load. I mean, I hear a lot of the homework load. You know, homework is taking me two hours, and he's crying and carrying on. And then mm-hmm. you have parents yelling and saying, "You, you have to do this. You have to do this." What do you mean you don't want to do your homework? And and, and that starts to snowball. Um, certainly, the testing. Is a huge issue. Kids have to do these uh, not the standardized ch- tests, but you know, assessment tests. I mean, you know in the community I where I work with, there's a sixth grade assessment test, which I have just streams of kids coming in because they're so anxious about the test. They have to write a report. They have to give an oral presentation, not in their class, but in you know, in front of a panel of teachers, and they have to do that in order to graduate mm-hmm. into middle school. So there's just a lot of
0: pressure, and they probably hear about the test and the importance of the test for weeks and weeks prior to the test. And I think the same thing is probably true of the SATs for older kids. This is mm-hmm. so important. Your whole college career can depend on your <laughs> the outcome of this test. It's, I think, crazy-making in this pressure. And certainly, as you point out, it's not exactly going to improve anyone's performance, having all that pressure on them to perform.
1: No, it actually of course it does the opposite.
0: <laughs> it does the opposite. So I'm wondering, this book is addressed to parents, gives some really concrete and very specific tools and exercises for parents to work with their kids to help them through this kind of anxiety. But I'm wondering just as an aside, as an educator myself, do you do trainings with teachers? Because I'm I'm thinking I'm sure some of the st- the anxiety is triggered in the classroom by the tone and attitude of teachers.
1: I've had schools ask me to come in, and a number of schools have said that they just can't do it because of their economics. I mean, it's something that I've just put up. It's fairly new going in and training teachers how to allow children to take want, to teach them belly breathing, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. You mentioned it a lot. I was delighted to read it because... In my book, Too Stressed to Think, I talk about belly breathing. I'm a yoga student myself, mm-hmm. and I know how helpful it is to me personally in times of stress and anxiety. And uh, I would love to have you describe it to our listeners, because I think it's a, a phenomenal technique, so practical and useful. And as I say, always accessible. It's right there.
1: (laughs) Always accessible and invisible, which is so crucial for kids sitting in a classroom. When I tell the kids I work with, I'm going to teach you how to ease anxiety. I'm going to give you these techniques and nobody will ever know that you're doing them. Mm-hmm. And that means so much to them because you just can't do certain things and have all oh, the kids look at you and think you're really strange. If you, know, if you look at anxiety, anxiety is anxiety is the fight or flight. There's this primitive defense mechanism that we all have. Or in fact, all living things have it that kicks in When a child believes that there is some danger to them, and by danger, I mean danger to self, not physical danger, but danger about going out the door, danger about taking a test and not doing well, danger about not having the homework done or not fitting in. And this primitive defense mechanism is revved up, and one of the main aspects of it is the change in breathing our respiration changes because the the brain is saying there's danger here and I need a lot of oxygen because we either have to flee or run away or do something so breathing changes into this rapid, rapid, shallow, you know, respiration, essentially. And I teach kids that just changing your breathing pattern will actually switch you to another part, and fight or flight is the nervous system, another part of the nervous system, the relaxation, the relaxation response, and that you can move your stress hormones, which are now raging, you can actually Decrease them, and you can do it in one or two breaths if you're practiced. And you can, I've worked with kids as young as five who easily learn how to belly breathe. Isn't that wonderful? And the kids who engage in it, they love it. And I actually teach it to the parents too, because parents need to be utilizing this technique. When they are faced with a child who says, I'm not going to school, like I'm not going today and you can't make me. Hmm. So, because our children feed off of our emotions, they look at us, they see us, they see what we look like, they hear our tone of voice. And I say to parents, you have to really stay calm no matter what you're hearing, no matter what, as, as irrational as this this sounds from your child you know i'm afraid to go out the door i'm afraid to go to school and i've had you know, parents come in and say, i have say to my kid, that's silly. What are you afraid of getting on a school bus? Not so, helpful. <laughs> not helpful at all, no. Um, so, I teach it to parents and children and it becomes the basis for a lot of the work I do with them. That you can take control of your anxiety instead of letting it take control of you. Because one of the main features is feeling out of control. When you're anxious, you don't feel that you can stop this, these very disturbing sensations.
0: So let me ask you, um, I would imagine that this could have positive ramifications throughout the family in in areas that had nothing to do with particularly the school anxiety. Mm -hmm. Because if, if parents remember, and that's the challenge always, to remember to stop and breathe and get back into control of your runaway emotions and your thoughts that are whirling into dangerous and dark corners Mm -hmm. that are not helpful places, if you can do that, I would imagine as a parent, you're modeling some wonderful stress management techniques, Mm -hmm. but you're also in a much more receptive place to actually listen, to understand, to respect what Mm -hmm. the other people in your family are saying about where they're at.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the one of the exercises I work with kids on is they're going to teach their entire family to breathe. So I that they <laughs> so that they feel empowered. They come in, they're feeling you know, very distressed. They want help. I have kids coming in and banging there on their knees and saying, I don't want to be like this. I just don't want to. So, we, we say, okay. Now, okay, we look at who's in the family. So, you're going to teach mommy how to breathe and daddy how to breathe. And it's a wonderful reinforcement. And a lot of kids, of course, on school nights or Sunday night have a hard time going to sleep because they're now worrying about the next day, they're worrying about the future. So they practice it at night and mommy will sit or daddy will sit or the caregiver will sit with the child and everybody's breathing in the room. And you can get the temperature down in a room actually by just one person breathing and staying really grounded and steady. It really helps families who who engage in it and say, you know, okay, we're really going to do this.
0: Okay, so let me ask you, Who would refer a child to you? When does a parent know that I need some professional help to get this under control because I'm frustrated? I'm concerned about my child's behavior. I'm fearful that he or she is falling behind academically. Mm -hmm. I'm maybe ashamed Mm -hmm. of some of of this behavior because it's reflecting poorly on me. People are seeing this clinginess and saying, oh, what a bad parent. Mm -hmm. All of those things are acting on the parent. And I'm wondering, at what point does a parent say, I need some outside help?
1: I think you have to wait a week or two. If if you're looking at new, going to school, the new school year or school for the first time, let's say a kindergarten student or a pre-k or transitioning to middle or high school, you want to wait, let's say a week or two and see if your child is going to make an adjustment. Uh, The caveat to that would be the intensity of the symptoms that you're seeing. Um, If you're seeing in young children I mean, the clinging, the screaming, kicking, biting, you really have to take action. You know, older children, you certainly might see acting out behavior because when children become anxious, especially young children, it's very hard for them to express it verbally. They just know how they feel. So, they, in order to cope with it, they act out in some way. So, if you see anything that's pretty severe, I would immediately number one contact the school. You've got to find out what's going in that school. You don't you want to go into the classroom, be open to the conversation, you want to talk to the teacher. I would get the guidance counselor involved too because a guidance counselor can be a wonderful resource in school because you really can't go to school with your child every day. Essentially, they have to walk through those doors alone eventually and deal with it alone. And that's the first place to start and you know, there's you can make a plan of action and I can give you an example. I'm working with many, many of the kids I've worked with. The guidance counselor has met the child at the door and has taken the child to the guidance office before the child goes into the classroom just to break the pattern. And so the guidance counselor becomes a resource person. That's great. Where sometimes teachers say, okay, I'm going to have, you know, what we're going to do is I'm going to pick a child each day or each week to come in and help me before school starts to set up the classroom so that the child isn't stigmatized. Mm -hmm. But so that would be the first place I would start and that would be at the school. I'd also take a a really long, hard look at what's happening in the house.
0: Okay, so what I hear you say is to be proactive on two fronts. One, for the parent who's recognizing these symptoms, which seem severe and don't seem to be abating Mm -hmm. in a week or two, that you call up the school and essentially do a classroom observation. I would do that. I would would do that. And get in touch with the counselor Mm -hmm. at school. And then also you're suggesting they take a look and see what's going on in the family. This is something a parent can do on their Uh own. It's something shifted Uh that my child is
1: manifesting Uh this um, reaction to. Okay, great. If the symptoms do not abate, then go to see your family physician. And that's really the route that kids take. So by the time I get a referral, it's usually from either a parent who has a recommendation from another parent, but I get a lot of uh, referrals from guidance counselors because they know me as a person who can deal with kids and help kids.
0: Now, you talked about physical symptoms in your book, Mm -hmm. um, things like uh, inability to sleep, change in appetite, Mm -hmm. diarrhea, throwing up. Those kinds of things certainly might send off warning signals to a parent that maybe there's something... Mm -hmm that needs to be attended to here. So is are those reasons why a parent would take the kid to the physician?
1: Oh, definitely. You want to rule out any medical condition, anything that might be occurring. So you want to rule, out, rule that out. The number one complaint with younger children is stomach aches. Yep. <laughs> My stomach hurts and I'm not going out that door. And it really does hurt. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I say to parents, if you look at what school anxiety looks like, Can look like defiance, but it isn't. I don't want to go to school. Kids can get angry and they can curse and they can scream, or they can, they certainly can withdraw and do those things too. But the kids who act it out, you know, parents really think they're defiant and being disrespectful, but actually the child is just doesn't have another way to express it. And they're really... They're desperate. They're desperate. Yeah. They are in yeah. survival mode. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes very important for parents because they actually have no idea what's happening. So when they understand that their child is really suffering, then they can begin to take other steps and they really have to learn how to communicate with your child i think it's so important to be able to do what you know what i call effective communication you know how to listen you've got to stay calm you've got to open to your child's problems it could be anxiety it could be sex it could be anything it doesn't matter what the child comes with you want to really be open to what your child is saying and listen and not judge what they're saying.
0: That's so important. I'm, I'm so glad that you talked about that. It's something that I feel really strongly about, the yes. ability for parents to kind of calm down and actually be on the receiving end in a way that is open-minded and open-hearted. Mm-hmm. Because kids, especially as they move towards tween and teen years, it's their natural tendency to kind of eke out a private, life for themselves as they are normally supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But when parents discount or invalidate the feelings Mm -hmm. and somehow poo-poo them or in any way make the kid feel that they're making it up,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) then kids are less likely to see parents as a part of the solution.
1: Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happens.
0: And as you say in the book, kids should feel isolated already. And the suffering is real. For them to be suffering in silence or somehow try to feel that they have to put some facade on top of this suffering, mm-hmm. that's heartbreaking to me as a parent because we all, we're all wired to want to really help our kids. Mm-hmm. So I love hearing you giving parents techniques so that they can really give their kids the kind of help that is helpful.
1: I think you made another point point, and you said suffering in silence, some kids act out, and you can they are noisy, I want help, and you're going to listen to me no matter what, but the majority suffer in silence. Most children go to school, even if they're anxious. The minority are the kids who won't go to school, I don't know, I think it's like 5 or 6% at any one time, though up to 15% of all school children have some school anxiety, or actually even higher than fifteen percent uh, it could be almost fifty percent at some point they'll have school anxiety, and they make noise. The noisy ones make noise. everybody can see them hear them they're going to they 're going to be taken to doctors and therapists, but it's those other kids who just stuff it in and they sit there and they come in eventually because they get sick mm.
0: so it's easy to spot the ones who are as you say acting out and really crying, crying for help. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very healthy response. I need help.
1: And help, and you're going to help me.
0: (laughs) And you're going to help me. I'm not going to let up until I get some help. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. the other ones, which sound like the vast majority of the kids, are just, you know, trudging along. And If they do not physically become ill, how does one identify that kind of school anxiety when it's hidden under so many layers of the good girl or the good boy? You
1: got it. I would say the withdrawal. You see withdrawal, they may not want to socialize, they want to stay home. There's just this sadness that comes over these kids, they live with this very heavy heart, appetite, sleep problems, difficulty concentrating. I say to parents, you know, as a parent myself, we know our children best. Uh, I don't care who you go to, who you listen to, we know when something's off. And I would go with my gut when you think something's off. But the quiet kids really um, start suffering from depression. Mm-hmm. Um because they don't have any way to express it, and the older they get, the more difficult it becomes um I think you use like the good girl, the good boy, they really just stuff it in, and they don't want to be stigmatized in any way so and sometimes you'll have the you know visit to the nurses, and you might get more headaches. And stomach aches as they get older.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But I would look for that withdrawal. And
0: especially if it's out of character for your child. Yes, definitely. Something has shifted in terms of their willingness and their delight in being a young person Mm -hmm. and having friends. and, And there's all that good stuff that comes from school. Sometimes that balances The tests that nobody likes to take and the homework, but there's my friends are there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I was wondering in terms of budget cuts. You mentioned a school nurse. You mentioned a guidance counselor. Are you finding that there are fewer of these resources on campus?
1: Um, What I'm finding in my area, um, they actually cut some teachers. But the nurses and the guidance counselors are still there. They have really heavy loads. But I've heard in other school districts where some nurses have been cut and nurses have even a heavier load or actually go from school to school. And actually, I talked to a, a, somebody I know personally who's a nurse school nurse and said, in one day, she saw eighty five kids, and she said it oh was not goodness. for this. It was not for the swine flu, and it was a small school. What is this every five seconds someone else comes in? She said they just came in, and that was kind of the beginning of school. There were a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. <sighs> And she said they were just they were just coming in, you know, trying to adjust. And
0: I talk about stress with kids and parents and teachers a lot as well. So much of your book was very familiar and right on as far as I'm concerned. And I, and I was thinking about a teacher training that I did prior to school starting. It was at the end of August here locally in the Bay Area, thinking about the teacher's anxiety in terms of the uncertainty of their employment. Mm-hmm and what it's like for kids to be taught by teachers who, especially in the spring, are waiting to see whether they will be rehired for the fall, and how checked out or not the teachers might be distracted on edge when their livelihood is at stake. And it, it's so interconnected, everything. This kid is taking the stuff from home, taking their own perceptions of themselves and how they compare to their peers sitting in a classroom being taught mm-hmm. by individuals who may have their own anxiety about who were
1: stressed, stressed out were
0: just out and the, the kid is like in this vice it's getting pushed from all directions mm-hmm. let me ask you this i i think i'm i read correctly that you've been treating school anxiety professionally for 18 years is that accurate 18 years okay i got that right mm-hmm. i'm wondering if you've noticed a difference has there been a trend towards more of this and if so my my hypothesis is probably you will answer yes what do you attribute that to
1: um yes um <laughs> the there's is yes. Def- there's an uptick and i one of the ways i monitor it i certainly don't do any formal research is during the summers i usually see fewer children they're off to camp and their school. School is not here, so school is not an issue. But over the last three years, I have children coming in throughout the year or children coming in throughout the summer because the, m- the moment they leave school, they're actually worried oh. about September. Then they can't enjoy their downtime. They don't enjoy the downtime. They don't enjoy the summer, particularly the tweens who are transitioning into middle school. And I had quite a few this summer. There's just so much anxiety about it. You know this, but let me say that, you know, you have the pre-adolescents. They're in this incredible stage of development. You know, they have sex hormones surging through their body. The emotional centers of the brains are going crazy. But their kind of rational side, the rational side of the brain is still developing. And so you have all of that growth and that change taking place. On top of it, you have schoolwork has really become more difficult, harder. The pressures are just staggering for these kids, again, with the homework and testing and the fitting in. And I, my children are grown, so I, my children did not grow up in this age of technology. And I've read some really interesting studies or interesting articles, actually, about the use of computers, or let's say the passive entertainment, that it raises blood pressure in children, that, you know, sitting for hours and hours and hours in front of computers, and I understand that kids socialize through computers in a way that certainly I can't understand it, but I understand it as far as it's so different for them. And I'm wondering, or I've talked to so many kids who use that as a way to stay away from the one-on-one social interaction. It's so much easier to be on a computer alone in a room. So that becomes an issue with some of the pre-adolescents I see, whose parents are now shutting down their time and saying, I want you to go out and be more one-on-one or social. These are kids, of course, who socially are having some difficulty. So, I've seen some of that. And again, I'm looking at the wider world. The economy has tanked and parents are more stressed. Um, So, I'm seeing so much stress in the homes. And I think you said with teachers being stressed. So, the kids are really sandwiched in a world that's stressed out. And also, there's difficulty communicating. I see a lot of children who are overscheduled to a degree that I think it's harmful. I think it's wonderful for kids to have outside interests. That's so important. You know, you want to go for the strengths and and build their interests. But a lot of them are overscheduled. And I've seen a lot of burned out kids by the time they're in seventh grade.
0: And do you recommend as part of your, your treatment for school anxiety to parents
1: sometimes to cut back on the after school activities? I certainly discuss it with them. I talk to the kid, I get to know the child, I build a rapport and communicate to find out how the child feels about their schedule and what they're doing. Because you brought it up earlier and we talked about it earlier in our discussion, the stress to have all of these activities as they get older, because what it's going to mean for their college application.
0: Yeah, the resume building, I did a stress survey for my book, And probably queried 1,200 kids between Mm -hmm. the ages of 11 and 17, asking them what their definition of the word stress was. Mm -hmm. What do they feel physically when they are stressed? What do they feel emotionally? How does their behavior change when they're stressed? Mm -hmm. They begin to really focus in on what is this thing, this word that we use all the time, what does it really mean to me? And asking them what triggers it. And then, you know, the other part of it is, what do you do to de-stress? But I remember distinctly an 11-year-old boy said that what stressed him out was getting into medical school. (laughs) Now, it is funny.
1: Mm -hmm, But it isn't. It's It's sad.
0: The other thing I was also thinking about as you were talking about the preponderance of computer time and kids who are having less than successful social lives in the real world, find it easier to stay on the computer and your online friends don't see you, don't have the whatever baggage you may bring into the class. Oh, there's that kid who's, you know, always going to the nurse's office or the kid who who freaks out whenever there's a test. You can meet somebody on a whole new level. You're invisible. You come in and you are often accepted. and, And I think there's value in that as a transition for kids who are learning social skills. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of all this social digital media, I find, is that kids never get, even the kids who are incredibly social, never get any time away from the social pressure Mm -hmm. of their peer group. This is especially true. In middle school and high school where the kids literally are connected (laughs) with their friends and the social drama Mm -hmm. all the time. And the pressure from that is a different, can be a different kind of school anxiety if you don't feel as popular as someone
1: else. Mm -hmm. And... It, there is no respite from it. I agree. I find it it's so interesting because when I question kids, I'm taking intakes or getting to know them. It's so funny because one of the things I start off with, in, uh, especially with older children, I know that they have cell phones or they have something technical because they come in with it. You know Their thumbs are going. I know they're texting. <laughs> and I'll say to them, you know, they'll come in and I'll say, you know, I'm going to ask you something that I think is going to be really tough here. And they'll say, like, what? And I said, you know, I think this is going to be really hard for you, but I think we'll manage it. And they'll say, what? And I said, you're going to have to turn your cell phone off. And they start laughing. They just roar. (laughs) One of the ways I I check to see how connected they are is I'll say, how many, you know, phone numbers do you have? I have 150. Mm -hmm. And I call them, like, a lot. (laughs) Um, or yeah. text. And how
0: many text. How many text messages have you sent in the last month? Because that appears on the phone bill. I know. It, a thousand? It's, it's, Two thousand? I
1: know. <laughs> Just talking about this, there's such an interesting illustration of a boy. I was actually successfully worked through into middle school when he was 12 year old and highly anxious and was afraid he was going to get lost. And he was, he was a very sensitive boy because anxious kids have certain kind of personality types to them. And he was very worried about middle school. And he he was social, but not popular social. And he was on the computer, hmm, I'd say, 10 hours a day, if not more. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I talked to the parents. And his father was uh, on the computers a lot, too. So I talked to them, and we started talking about, you know, just limiting the time and what's reasonable. You know, we had him in on the conversation and those kinds of things, too. And what I found out about him, actually, was that he loved bird watching, and it, you know he was just he was just liked nature. And I was a bird watcher myself. I used to go on bird watching uh, soir- excursions with people. So I said to them, well, let's see what's going to happen if you just reduce his time. And I said, you can't be angry. You can't be this. You you know you're none of this screaming and yelling. The moment it was turned off, and he knew, and he balked at it. She said he went out in the yard, and he was kind of touching leaves and collecting leaves and she found him on a lounge chair just kind of looking up at the sky and Mm. she watched her son from the window she didn't go out she wanted to see what he was going to do she said it was just so wonderful to see him and she said it it was just such a wonderful change from this kid who was on all the time I, I thought it was just a great illustration of what happens when you turn off or let's say allow free time I think that's another thing. I, I think play time and free time and daydreaming time is just so important. It's not a waste of time. It's just so important for the creative process.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I would think that maybe that's part of what you've seen, the increase in stress and anxiety over the last 18 years, is the, the lessening of free time. Free
1: time. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and that, that parents and teachers... Have such high expectations and have the workload that they need to transmit to the kids mm-hmm. and the hoops that need to be jumped through at this point and this point and this point. We always seem to be preparing for something in the future, so that anytime we're not preparing, we are "quote unquote" wasting time. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, it's terrible when I think about what my childhood was growing up in the '50s and '60s and. Being able to just take my bike out of the garage and say, bye. <laughs>
1: see you later. I'll see you later.
0: <laughs> I'll see you later. And I had no, there were no cell phones. My mom didn't expect me mm-hmm. to, you know, be in touch in any way. Mm-hmm. Of course, the world is a less safe place in reality, but I think part of our fears as parents come from. Someplace that is not based in reality. The kids could have more independence than we give them, and certainly less schedule.
1: I agree, and I think also that there's an overexposure of the images because of you know television and certainly cable news, which is, I mean, if you don't see that image, you know, five thousand times in two hours, over and over and over again. And, say-
0: and you know what, Diane? They're not about to show an image of. The boy you just described picking up leaves and staring at the sky. No. (laughs) They're going to show something violent and Mm -hmm. scary with Mm -hmm. headlines to match about some kid who was snatched somewhere. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. But you brought up a point before you said, uh, you brought up the um, story about the boy who at 11 years old was worried about getting into (laughs) medical school. You know, the main feature of anxiety is worrying about or thinking about past experiences that have been painful or embarrassing or frightening and then projecting that into the future. What if this happens? What ifs, the what ifs? But it is not about the present. And we live in the present and that's where the breathing and the mindfulness comes in. So, you know, you just put it together for me in such a great way and I have to say thank you because if we're looking at the worry about college and the worry about middle school, and the kid is in elementary school, you're in the, f- the future. We live in the moment. I'm not saying it's not good to plan and have goals, don't get me wrong, but life goes on now. Right, it's the only place. And it's, and, you know, so the stress about, you know, oh, you know, I mean, I've had parents come in and say that they believe that their child is going to end up living in a cardboard box if that child doesn't do blank, 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 blank. And they
0: believe that. So how, how do you calm these parents?
1: No, you need to be calming these parents as well. So do you meet with parents separately? I meet with the child, and then I will tell children, I must meet with your parents separately. I'm going to get history, family history, and, and I'm... These are things I'm going to talk about, and I will tell children that I'm going to be working with your parents, and we're going to, of course, depending on what kind of information I'm getting, I'm going to help you, or we are going to make it better in the house. I'm going to teach your parents how to talk to you about this I know that the parent is yelling. I know that the parent is screaming about homework and carrying on, and they are frightened, and I'm not downing parents. I'm a parent myself, and my youngest daughter has a learning disability. So I know how frustrating that can be and how scary that can be. But kids, most kids love to have their parents in and working on this.
0: I would imagine, yeah, that when you say, I'm going to be working with your parents so that they can learn, to help you in the same way that I'm going to be helping you, that would be a great source of comfort and relief. It is,
1: and you—you you said before, you know, we talked about honoring your child's feelings. That becomes number one, besides calming down, having the parent calm down themselves, to just change the dialogue with the child. Okay, okay, I know this is happening. And to really say we're a team and you're not alone in this and I'm going to guide you and I'm going to be, again, that solid rock who you can depend on me and together we're going to work it. Because I find, I don't care how young the child is, pretty much kids like to be involved and engaged in the process. They begin to they begin to feel better. They begin to have their confidence is increased. And they say, hey, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought of that. And what I do with kids who come in and work with me, They'll take the techniques and the things I teach them, and they'll say, can I tell you, Miss Diane, where I use this? And they'll, I'll say, sure. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, I'll say, that is such a great idea. Do you mind if I use that with other kids <laughs> who are coming in with the same problem? They say, please. <laughs> oh, I'd love you to help other kids. I know how it feels. And they feel so wonderful because they are out there alone having to navigate this difficult world, a world where... It's pretty rigid. They can't just go away and calm themselves down for the most part. So they have to be able to do it where they're sitting in class. Mm -hmm. They have to navigate it, and we expect they have a lot of expectations. Um, So it's really worked out well when I engage them actually in the whole healing process.
0: I was going to ask you, Diane, how long does it typically take when a child enters into this therapeutic relationship with you for them to start feeling better and... And for them to not need you anymore?
1: Uh, I don't don't think I can even answer that. Typically. It's so unique. Mm -hmm. I would say typically most kids stay a year. Mm -hmm. If kids are coming in, they'll stay the academic year. And they may come back during the summer um, where they may say, okay, this is great. I feel good. But in August, they may come back for a refresher course um, because if they're starting to worry about the following year. And most parents understand that these are great coping skills. Yes. And I think you mentioned it yourself. It's just coping. You want to have these coping skills in life. You have to be able to deal with, there's going to be anxiety, not just in school, but At work or, you know, personally, you don't know what's going to happen. Life is a mystery. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's wonderful because especially if a whole family is engaged in the process, then you begin to see the whole family changing and one of, for example, um, just spending more free time together and maybe reducing some of the more scheduled time and saying, hey, you know, just having some spontaneity. Hey, you know, let's go, let's go hike. Or let's do this. Or let's do, how about a movie? How about cooking? I mean, those kinds of things that bring parent and child together. And I'm always looking for ways that parents can make deeper connections, richer connections with their child. And I think that certainly helps in every aspect of a child's life. It's not all about patting
0: your kid on the head when he comes home with an A. No. (laughs) There there are other ways to succeed in this life. Um, I had another thought as I was reading your book, and I'm going to run this by you. You know, when we talk about school anxiety and individual kids' inability to adapt and feel comfortable in the classroom environment, I had the thought of this very sensitive child as being akin to a canary in a coal mine,
1: Mm.
0: (laughs) where it's not necessarily the anxious child who has the problem that needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What could we, as parents who are listening, as educators who are listening, do as caring, loving adults who want to support the healthy, emotional, social development of children... How can we do a better job of making schools a less anxiety-provoking place?
1: Well, you know, I see as many teachers in my practice as I see children because teachers bring in these kinds of problems. They feel that they are not allowed to be more creative in their teaching because of the, again, the proliferation of testing. And many will say, you know, I have to teach to the test. And that does not allow them to look at the individual child. I mean, it's hard to look at an individual child when you're in a classroom of 30, and I know teachers really try and do that. I think, for me, having my own experiences with school anxiety and having my younger daughter who had a learning disability, and I have one myself, I think the way we teach or the way we look at intelligence would have to be changed. Um, I'm very uh, – I love Howard Gardner and I love his levels of intelligence. There are, what, 11 or 12 different kinds of intelligence if you look at it. But we teach to verbal and math And children are unique, the way they learn, uh, their interests, the way they process information, their talents, their type of intelligence, but it's very, very rigid. So when we look at success in school, I think it's just too narrow. Yeah. And I think we have to open that up. And I think parents must look at the uniqueness of this child. If you want your child to be a star and your child isn't, the A student, the athlete scholar, the social butterfly, whatever it is, you need to take a look at that if those are your dreams and expectations because that comes through. And you need to look at this wonderful, this gem, this unpolished gem in front of you. You want to look at that child and just love them for who they are. And I know it's a cliche, but that's really when it works best for the child.
0: That's wonderful. I think that's well said and a great way to end this conversation, which I found so helpful to me in the way that I will now go forth talking to parents in parent ed situations and talking to kids acknowledging that there is a lot to be stressed about in Mm -hmm. school. Yes. So that it's not just there's something wrong with you, that you're feeling the stress, and also that there are ways. There are ways that you can help yourself Mm -hmm. manage some of these feelings Mm -hmm. in, in more productive ways. One last question. Are you considering writing a book for kids? because what you've done here I think is very powerful obviously you have a lot of experience one to one in your practice working with kids and I'm I'm wondering if you have thought about that idea because I think it's very needed
1: I have thought about it I haven't acted upon it <laughs> um it it is a thought um Uh, I've had a few parents ask me, but certainly a few parents over the years ask me about it. I will give it more thought as of today.
0: (laughs) I would encourage you, Diane, because I think, you know. I wish this weren't so prevalent a problem, Mm -hmm. but I think the book in the hands of the kids Mm -hmm. would empower them especially well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you very much for spending some of this morning with me. The book is called Overcoming School Anxiety, how to help your child deal with separation, tests, homework, bullies, math phobia, and other worries. My guest has been Diane Peters Mayer. Diane, can you just tell us where parents might get more information about the
1: work that you do and how to contact you? They can go to my website, DianePetersMayer.com. And I have a blog attached to my website, too. Thank you again for
0: spending time with us and for sharing all this insight with us. It's been
1: very helpful. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Thanks. Good luck. Thank you.
0: I'm Annie Fox for Family Confidential. For more information about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest Rachel Simmons, author of Odd Girl Out, will discuss her new book, The Curse of the Good Girl, Raising Authentic Girls with Courage and Confidence. Till then, happy parenting.